If you have your Bibles, let me invite you now to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, as we consider or continue our way through this letter. And the theme that has been echoed throughout the book of Hebrews, woven in the very nature of the book itself, is that Jesus is a better Savior. He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. He's the better mediator of a new covenant, of a better covenant. And especially as we've looked at Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, the explanation of why Jesus is a better sacrifice has pretty much occupied the mind of the author of Hebrews. And in this culminating part of the section, we see a three-part argument for the superiority of Jesus's sacrifice. And as I read, I would like to you, you to notice, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, what is said about the Old Testament or Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, ceremonial system. It is argued that the Old Testament ceremonial system of sacrifices did not result in the cleansing of sinners. It did not result in the forgiveness of sins. It did not result in addressing the problem of a guilty conscience in the heart of believers. And then as we read verses 5 through 10, I want you to see what the author of Hebrews says, what did and what does all of those three things. And that it is the obedient, atoning sacrifice of Jesus that was actually foreshadowed by the Old Testament ceremonial system. And then finally, in verses 11 through 18, the author of Hebrews talks about what that, uh, talks about what that did. If the Old Testament ceremonial system didn't work, if Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice did, what did it do? And the author of Hebrews in verses 11 through 18 appeals to Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, and says that Jesus' sacrifice did two very important things. We would use the language under the new covenant of justification and sanctification if we were to use even the language of our catechism and confession of faith. Forgiveness and transformation were accomplished by the obedient sacrifice of Jesus. And so I want to look at this passage together with you today in hopes that we will learn again how Jesus is superior, he is better, and the sacrifice he has offered is far better than what the old covenant offered. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now let me stop. The word make perfect means to equip a person with acceptability. In other words, to give the person confidence to enter into the worship of God because that person knows he is acceptable by the work of Christ. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first, that is the first covenant, in order to establish the second, that is the new covenant. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, uh, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is God's word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, this is your word. We would ask that you would open our eyes to behold and see the wonderful things that are here. We would ask you to show us our Savior in the perfection of his person and work, and that you would grant us by your Holy Spirit faith in him, that we would put no confidence in the flesh, that we would put no confidence in ourselves, but that all our hope would be in him, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the question... I often ask is, what were you made for? What did God create you for? He made you for communion with himself, to enlarge the circle of community between the Trinity and to include us in the circle of that great participation of love and fellowship, basically to enjoy him. And we lost that in the fall of Adam and Eve. And the question then comes, who or can restore that kind of communion? And the answer found from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation is only Jesus. Only Jesus can restore that lost communion. And the only way he can re restore it is through his obedient atoning work. So what is it that we need in order to enjoy full, honest, open communion with God again in this world? We need forgiveness, and we need transformation. And that is what Jesus provides us through 
his obedient atoning work. We need justification. We need the declaration of God who declares that we are under his favor, that we are right with him on the basis of what Christ has accomplished in our place. And we need sanctification, that uh, process in which God purifies us more and more, delivers us more and more from the power of the flesh and conforms us more and more to the image of Jesus. We need to be brought back into relationship by being declared that we are forever right with God and we have restored to us a new and powerful desire to treasure God above all else. And that work God does in us through his grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, I want us to focus on three things, and they are outlined in your bulletin. First, the foreshadowing of the real sacrifice. The first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 4 is this. God designed the ceremonial system under Moses to foreshadow the real sacrifice to come. The ceremonial system itself, apart and alone, was incapable of forgiving sins. It was incapable of forgiveness or renovation or restoration or transformation. But it pointed to the real sacrifice that was able to forgive sins and to bring about transformation. In other words, the old covenant sacrifices could not perfect or atone for our, our, our forgive to reconcile people to God. But the real sacrifice they foreshadowed could. Look at how he argues this. If you look in verse 1, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. You and I cannot imagine how radical a statement that was in the first century to this primarily uh, Jewish Christian community. Can you imagine a Hebrew hearing a preacher of the word standing up and saying that the law, the law of Moses, is a mere shadow? It's just a shadow. It's a shadow of things to come. It didn't have the reality to that which it pointed. It was just a shadow. And so consequently, at the end of verse 1, it can never make perfect those who draw near. The author of Hebrews just categorically says the ceremonial law cannot get you to God. It cannot accomplish that. The ceremonial law cannot bring you back into rich and deep communion with God. And then in verse 2, he explains why. Verse 2 is designed to prove the point of verse 1. Otherwise, they uh, would not cease to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. You see the argument. The argument is you can know that the Old Testament ceremonial sacrifices did not accomplish forgiveness because why? They were repeated. If they had worked, they wouldn't have needed to be repeated. The very fact that they were repeated shows that they did not bring about what they pointed to, and that was forgiveness. And then he goes on to say, notice, that the Old Testament worshipers were, in fact, if you look at verse 3, reminded of this point every year when they had to what? Repeat the sacrifices. In these sacrifices, 
the worshiper, the old covenant worshiper, would have been subjectively reminded of their sin. In the very act of having to repeat year after year after year the annual atonement ritual, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so he says that God designed the old covenant ceremonial system. He designed it, but it was not able to forgive. It pointed forward to a sacrifice that would forgive. His point is the law could not give us what we need. And what do we need? We need forgiveness. And the forgiveness is promised to us in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, a passage that we read a couple of weeks ago as we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now note the contrast. He says the very repetition of ceremonial sacrifices would have reminded us that we still need forgiveness. But then he quotes the promise of Jeremiah 31, 34. It is the promise that God will remember our sins no more. Now his point is to contrast the Old Testament ceremonial system, which was not efficacious in itself, that did not bring about the full forgiveness of sins, and the promise of the new covenant, which anticipated God remembering our sins no more. So if the Old Testament ceremonial sacrificial system couldn't give us what we need, where do we find that? And the answer is in verses 5 through 10. But before we go there, I have racked my brain all week trying to figure out how to impress upon you what the author is saying. And perhaps an illustration might be in order. Let's say that when I met my future wife, Pam O'Brien, that was her name, and I remember the first time I ever saw her, and she was striking to me. She was beautiful. And let's say that Pam, after I dated her a couple of times, I saw a picture of Pam that I thought somewhat captured uh, her beauty. And I said, would it be all right if I took this picture? And let's say Pam said, well, sure, I don't look at it. You can have it. And so I took it home, and when I woke up in the morning, first thing I looked at was I was smitten. I was in deep smit with this woman. And so, so I'd take that picture, and I would look at it. And then I put it down, go do something else, and a few minutes later I come back and look at that. I, that's what's called prenuptial worship. And that's what I was doing. <laughs> I was looking at this picture and I was just admiring her beauty and I was just thanking God every day that He brought me into contact with such a gloriously beautiful woman who I was attracted to, who made my heart skip a beat, and on and on and on. But I hung on to that picture. That picture was beautiful. But eventually the day came when I married her, and she moved in, and I saw her every single day. And that's been going on for 39 years. I have been looking at this woman every day. I wake up with her every day. I see her. I'm with her. She's with me every day. We spend a lot of time together as much as we can. We delight in each other, or at least I delight in her. I'm pretty sure she does in me. And let's say that I'm, I'm enjoying that for 39. I have three children. I have two grandchildren. Uh, my family has grown. It's just a beautiful thing. But let's say I wake up tomorrow morning, and I look at her, and I say, have you still got that old picture that you had when we were dating? Yeah, it's buried somewhere in the drawer. I said, could you find it for me? She walks in, gets the picture, hands it back to me, and says, what do you want that for? 
I said, well, I woke up this morning and here's what's going to happen. I really enjoyed the time that I've been with you. These 39 years are irreplaceable. I've grown in ways you've made me a better man, all that. And I would just keep talking like that. But then I would say, but you know what? Starting tomorrow, I'm moving out. I'm getting an apartment, and I'm going to take your picture with me. And I'm going to worship your picture every day, but I'm not going to live with you anymore. Now, among many things that I would anticipate she might say to me would be, <laughs> that takes a special kind of stupid to even say something like that to me. And I can imagine the fireworks that would occur. Why? Because it is stupid. And what, were, what was this church in danger of doing? That very thing. They were in danger of returning to the old covenant, which is just a picture. The reality is here. That's a shadow. The picture has occurred. Christ has come. You can't go back. But you know what? We all go back to the picture. And you say, Pastor, how do we do that? When we relate to the Lord, we go back to the covenant of works and attempt to live our relationship with God based on the covenant of works. In other words, we enter back into a relationship with God based upon our ability to live up to whatever standards we think are appropriate. And when we do it, we expect him to bless us. And when we fail, we know we're going to get cursed. And so our life becomes old covenant driven. I'm going to preach an entire sermon on that next Sunday. Don't have time to do it today. But that's what we do. So it isn't just a problem that this church had in the first century. This is a problem with every Christian in every age of returning back to that conditional relationship with the Lord based upon sanctions under the old covenant, thinking if I can just get it right, then he'll bless me. If I just pray enough, he'll answer. If I just give enough, I'll have money. If I just work harder, my career will expand. If I just do the right things in my marriage, Everybody will be happy. My kids will respect me. My wife or husband will love me. And so life becomes one big fat quid pro quo. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying more, I think, than he knew he was saying. Is that we tend to fall back into something about our DNA, our fallen DNA. Something like a compass points north. The default mode of my heart is always toward unbelief, self-reliance, and independence toward God. And being self-centered. And turning a relationship of grace into a relationship that is legal, that is law. Now how do we know we're doing that? Well, I, as I said, I'm going to preach a whole sermon on it next week. But let me just give you the tip of the iceberg. Number one, just as these people weren't sure they were forgiven, a person who's operating under the old covenant can't accept that they are forgiven. Why do we do that? Because we know if we treated anybody else the way we treat God, they would never forgive us. And we know that we would never forgive anyone who treats us the way we treat God most of the time we would never forgive them. And so we look at it through a calculus of merit. We look at it through the lenses of the old covenant, 
the lenses of if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. The first half of my Christian life was spent living that way, and it's miserable. I was a smug moralist for part of the time, and I was a miserable moralist the other part of the time, and now I hope I'm a gospel central person. That's the three points of next Sunday sermon, by the way. Because you know how you start thinking about these things and it just blows up. But that's what I want to say. You have a hard time with forgiveness. Uh, you believe that Christians have a duty, an onus, a responsibility to serve the Lord that we're obligated to, that we're indebted to God, and we live under this back-breaking load. Jesus said, my burden is easy. And my uh, calling to you is light. And we turn it into the heaviest thing in the world. We, we get hardening of the arteries. We, 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 become, we lose the joy of the gospel. And it becomes drudgery. And it becomes service. Because I have to. What would people say if I didn't? And uh, the Lord would be even more displeased with me than he is. And so there's no delight in serving God. There's no delight in giving. There's no delight in sharing the faith. You just do it to get rid of guilt. That's old covenant living. You suffer from performance anxiety because you're uncertain where you stand. And so anxiety is already all, you're just covered up with it. You live in fear. You can't walk in grace and joy and thanksgiving. Because you still feel like your own trial. You still feel like the jury's out. And they're considering your case. And so you're, you're just antsy. You're anxious. Another way you might know it is you think that God will bless me if I only do my part. He does his part. I do my part. If I do my part relatively well, then he'll bless me. Only one thing wrong with that. You cannot do your part relatively well. You have never done your part relatively well. You will never do your part relatively well. That isn't how God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't. And so, you're mad at God because you did your part and he didn't do his. I walked around about the first ten years of my Christian life in rage. Why? Lord, I've been tithing and I'm in deeper debt than I've ever been in my life. I've been giving more time and more money and more of myself to you, and what have I got to show for? Misery. Am I getting close here? That was hardly the abundant life that the four spiritual flaws promised me. And if you find yourself thinking what the church needs more than anything else is preaching on repentance we need repentance in the church it's a mindset that emphasizes what people must do but but there's a different kind of repentance there's a repentance that is legal and there's a repentance that is evangelical Legal repentance is, I repent, and if I repent well enough, then I will be accepted and God will bless me. Evangelical repentance is, the goodness of God leads me to repentance. 
You see, if all we're doing is calling people to repent of their sins, but we're never telling them that it is the goodness of God that creates repentance in us. John Calvin said, if we didn't know on the other end that uh, on the other side of our sins is a God whose heart toward us is one of benevolence, one of goodwill, one of reaching out and embracing us. If I didn't know that, I'd never repent. I'd never want to go home. So while we preach the law, and it's important to preach the law, and it's important for people to see their sin, you better preach the gospel too to cause a gospel-driven kind of repentance. The goodness of God, Romans says, leads to repentance. You always have this impending sense of doom in your life. You think the other shoe is going to drop any minute. You're walking around thinking, you know, God's going to get me someday. He's going to get me. And just an obsessively guilty conscience. Uh, and you're never at ease about it. And you feel like you read passages of Scripture that are law, and you think, I, can't, I don't do that. I have no hope. And you mainly think that following of Jesus is giving up things. It's you making sacrifices. Now, there is some sacrifice. There is a call to discipleship. But if you don't have the motive of doing it because you're so loved and treasured and adored and forgiven and made righteous through Jesus Christ, then you're operating on law. Your whole relationship is law-based. And it doesn't just go with God. It goes with our husbands, our wives, our children, our co-workers. It's all law, 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 law. There's no grace anywhere. We're stuck in the Old Covenant. Now, how do we get out? I almost preached that sermon, didn't I, already? I got a lot more to say about it. And the reason I have a whole lot more to say about it, because it's true of me. I told uh, Kevin when we were talking before the service, he taught a great class on Matthew today. And I said, do you know what the biggest day in my sanctification was? He said, what? I said, when I realized that the Pharisee and the scribes in the New Testament aren't people for me merely to objectify and say, look at those hypocrites. They are me. I am the man. They reflect back me and my ways of relating to God that are inconsistent with his glory and grace. So let's look at Jesus, the real sacrifice. Um, I think that's where we are. Christ came into the world as the real sacrifice in obedience to the Father's will. The Old Testament said there was a real sacrifice to come. Who is that sacrifice? What is that sacrifice? It's Jesus. Jesus is it. He fulfills God's will. He bears the penalty of God's will broken. He fulfills perf perfectly the requirements of God's will. And what does the author of Hebrews do? He quotes Psalm 40, verse 6 to verse 8. And if you turn to your Bibles, well, you don't have to turn there to Psalm 40. What he's saying is, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared me. Now, some of our English translations read differently in the second half of that verse. That's because your English translations are based on a Hebrew reading of that passage. And the author of Hebrews is quoting from the Greek translation of that passage. And it's a fascinating story, but I'm not going to go there today. But the author of Hebrews quotes this Greek 
passage on purpose for specific reasons. But a body you have prepared me. Do you know what it literally says? Not body, but ear. An ear you have prepared me. Wow. Well, it would be good for you to know this. An ear is representative in um, Hebrew culture of the whole body. So he's still saying, that's why it's translated body. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, let me explain what's going on. Many of you remember that one of the great themes in the Old Testament prophets, especially the latter prophets, is obedience is better than sacrifice. It's not always said exactly that way, but things like that are said repeatedly over and over in the prophetic uh, literature because they were covenant prosecutors of the Mosaic Covenant. And so they were constantly saying, God doesn't want you to merely go through the motions of outward ceremonial worship and not worship him with your heart and in your life. In other words, God doesn't want you to be a hypocrite. He doesn't want you to go through the ritual of worship without really worshiping him from the bottom of your heart and in all of your life. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, Isaiah makes this very point. When God says through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel, I hate your new moons and your feast and your sacrifices. Why does God say that? Because the people are worshiping him with their lips, but their hearts are far away from him. So over and over in prophetic literatures, there's this theme that bubbles to the top. To obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Don't perform all the rituals of the sacrificial system and feel all holy when you don't really love the Lord from your heart and in all of your life. It's the message we hear over and over and over. And uh, by the way, Jesus picks up on it. In the Gospels, when he talks to the Pharisees repeatedly, he says, you Pharisees, you talk about how much you care about the law, but the fact of the matter is, it's all outward and external with you. You worship God like you really believe the law. You obey the lesser matter, or you don't, you don't live life. You don't care about the moral law in reality. You don't worship God like you really believe it. You obey the lesser matters in the law and ignore the weightier matters of the law. So Jesus says the same kind of thing to the ministry of the Pharisees. Now when David quotes this passage in Psalm 40 and he says, sacrifices you have not desired, but behold, as is written in the scroll of the book of the law, I have come to do your will. Well, what's David saying? He's saying, Lord, I know you are not just interested in me going through the outward motions of worshiping you. You really want me to worship from the heart. You want my will to be given over to you. You want me to wholly give myself over to you. And David is declaring, that I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to obey you. Now, of course, David did this very imperfectly. He did not perfectly obey the will of God, but he's expressing there a desire to obey God and not simply go through the motions. Well, do you notice what the author of Hebrews says when he quotes? He does not say, well, now when David came into the world, he said, what does he say? He says, when Christ came into the world. Go back and look at verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. In that passage, Jesus is saying that David said more than he knew when he said this. David's words are actually fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus was not simply saying, I'm not only going to worship God outwardly through his appointed ceremonial system, but I'm going to obey him with all of my life. He's actually saying this. Jesus is saying, all those ceremonial sacrifices pointed to my sacrifice and my giving of my body as a sacrifice for you is the will of God that saves you. My obedient atoning sacrifice is what everything in the Old Testament ceremonial system was pointing forward to. The reason that Old Testament saints were forgiven is not because of the blood of bulls and goats and heifers, which we've already learned in verse 4 that cannot forgive sins. The reason they were forgiven is because Jesus died. Jesus' death, again, works backwards as well as forwards and forgives all who trust in him. In the only real and effective sacrifice, see, author here is telling us that Jesus, through his obedience and offering as a sacrifice, accomplishes everything we need. The Old Testament sacrificial system could not do this. So what did Jesus' sacrifice for us do? Two things. The sacrifice that he accomplished upon the cross and his work brings about the fulfillment of the new covenant promises. Christ's obedience to the will of God effectively and perfectly reconciles us to God. It's an amazing contrast in verses 11 to 18. Every priest stands at his service. The author of Hebrews draws attention to the fact that the Old Testament priest, whether they were in the tabernacle or temple, ministering for you as a representative before God, how did they do it? They did it standing. And they did it repeatedly. They were in there every day. So they were standing on your behalf every day. And he contrasts Jesus' work. When Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What's the point? The point is that you can see that Jesus' work is finished. It's perfect. It's done. Therefore, you are forgiven once and for all because he's not standing. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It is an indication that his work is done and his reign has begun. Whereas the Old Testament priests had to stand all the time, every day, on and on and on, doing their bidding on your behalf, Jesus does his work, offered one sacrifice, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he says, you see, this shows you Jesus is a better priest who offers a better sacrifice. Why? Because he finished his work. He finished his work. By the way, there's nothing you can add to his work to make it better. There's nothing you can do to make the work more efficacious except receive it by faith, the empty hand. What work has he finished? Well, verse 14 tells us. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, that's a fascinating statement. 
You might expect him to say he has perfected for all time those who had been justified. But he says he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has provided for your forgiveness. He is providing for your transformation. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31 to explain this. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying this covenant that I will make them after those days declares the Lord. Now what was involved in that covenant? First, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I'm going to renew you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to renovate you. And here's what it's going to look like. You are going to treasure nothing else above God. You will never treasure anything else other than Him. You're going to treasure God, so instead of loving something else more than God, you're going to love God supremely. So that instead of being totally focused on yourself, you're going to love others, your neighbors, your brothers, and even your enemies. And I'm going to transform you from the inside out. I'm going to write my law on your heart. And what is the summary of the law that Jesus gives? Love God, love your neighbors. He said, I'm going to write this upon your heart. In the verse 17, he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. What's that? That's justification. He's going to forgive us. So everything mentioned here in this passage, it's one of the reasons, and I say this with no one-upmanship, even though that's hard for me to do. I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. He would have said this very differently. But I think somebody who knew Paul wrote this. But he would, have said, he would have taken a very different tack, in my humble but accurate opinion on that. <laughs> Why? Sproul now knows he's in heaven. He now knows. I only see through a glass darkly. I'm not sure. I won't die. I won't go to the stake on either one. Our whole hope, our, all, our only hope, and the hope for the Christian in life is Christ. He's everything. Look away from Him, you have no hope. Our whole hope in the Christian life is in Christ, and if we look away from Christ, we look away from the only place we have any hope. What do we need to experience communion with God in this world? We need forgiveness, and we need sanctification, and we need transformation. And who can provide that? Only Jesus can provide that. And how does he provide that? Through his blood. And is there anything else that can provide that? No, nothing can. So the glorious liberation of the new covenant is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God does for us which we will never be able to do for ourselves. And he does it freely and graciously in giving his son's body to bear in his body on the tree the weight of our sins and transgressions and guilt and humiliation and shame. He bears it. He dies for it. He pays the price for it. And God forgives us on the basis of it. But he doesn't stop with just merely an external declaration that we are under his favor, that our sins are forgiven completely and forever, and that we have the righteousness of Christ as much of our own as if we did it ourselves, credited to our account. We've been gloriously justified. But he's done more to develop the communion. 
He sanctified us. He has set us apart to belong to Him. And He's begun that radical work that began with regeneration. You know, I used to watch some of the healing services that some of the TV preachers did. And I confess to you, I laughed at it. And then God convicted me I probably didn't need to be doing that. So I stopped. But it was fun to mock them, but I stopped. But one thing I noticed is that people would go nuts over some kind of healing. But if a little six-year-old girl or boy was regenerated by the grace of God and told his or her parents that they wanted to trust Jesus, which one is the greater miracle? The greater miracle is regeneration. Why? Because it lasts forever. We're all physically going to die, and it's wonderful to be healed. I'm not knocking healing. I'm all for healing. Heal me, Lord Jesus. There's plenty of places I need it. But the greater miracle is regeneration. God puts into us what's not there, life. We're just walking dead. I'm not going to say anything about walking dead. But we're, <laughs> we're, we're about zombie level. And then Jesus, through his spirit, quickens us. He brings life where there's only death. And then he brings about transformation. He, he calls us his new creation. We're new creatures in Jesus Christ. We have a new set of desires. Being lost in trespasses, dead in trespasses and sins, the flesh was dominant in our experience. When Christ comes into our lives, when we trust him, God's Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. And that's when all the tension starts. One of the greatest signs you're a Christian is you have this enormous civil war going on inside all the time. And it never goes away. And it never stops. I've often said the flesh is kind of like leukemia. Sometimes it goes into remission for a little while. But Adam, the old Adam, has amazing resurrection powers. He can come to life just like that. That was a crummy clap. Just like that. So, what a glorious Savior we have. He takes care of the problems that stand between us and being able to enjoy the triune God, to love Him, to have a, a relationship with Him that is based upon His goodness, His kindness, His long-suffering love for us. Now, yeah, they're demands, but they're not demands when looked at through the lenses of a son to a father and through the lenses of grace. They become things we want to do. I can tell you I never want to sin again. I can tell you I want to be 100% obedient to loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. I want that. I want that more than I want anything else. But I still stumble and fall. And I still sin. But were it not for Christ and His fulfillment of what the ceremonial aspects of the old covenant pointed to the reality has come the shadows are gone they're obsolete he has given me life so we need to hear it over and over and over again 
and we need to repent of trying to fix ourselves and learn how to rest in the finished work of Christ. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say I'm stumbling into a particular sin pattern over and over again, like I have an addiction. I might save this for next week. But here's where I tell you you want to go. Usually we'll, we'll go before the Lord and we'll, we'll get serious about dealing with this problem. It's eating us up and it's destroying us and everyone we're related to. And we want help. And so we start, well, maybe I need to read the Bible more. Maybe I need to fast. Maybe I need to pray to overcome this sin. And so we focus on everything but what or who? Jesus. We turn first to the flesh to fix it. And the flesh can't fix it. So what do you do? You get on your knees, prostate. <laughs> I have to say that slowly. Prostate. Straight. Prostrate. Isn't that right? Okay. On our face before God, and we say this, Lord, this thing is eating me up. It has power over me. I can't stop it. I can't deal with it. And if you don't save me, if you don't deliver me, if you don't come through as my only hope, I am doomed. I am done. Nothing excites the heart of God more than to hear you say that. Because it's all true. It's true truth. And that's what the gospel's all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to a life of joy and freedom. But where is all our joy? Where did it go? And we've lost it because we tend to find ourselves with a gravitational pull toward relating to you on the basis of the covenant of works. And we would pray that we would begin to understand more and more what the covenant of grace really is saying to us. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who are free and excited and enthused and in love with you and our neighbor. All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.